Shall we listen together to the word of God? That, that we might let that word just filter into our minds and hearts and lives. Um, and as the word is read and is preached, um, this is the word of God for us today. From James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, do not claim the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory while showing partiality. For if a person with gold rings and fine clothes come in, into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a good seat here and a good place, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor person. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into courts? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Surely that faith cannot save, can it? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works. And I, by my works, will show you faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is worthless? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works. And by works, faith was brought to completion. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. 
The word of the Lord. At the book of James, it is a short book, and what we're doing, it's, there's only five chapters in the book of James, and we're just teaching through the book, one chapter at a time, and so by the end of the five weeks, we will have heard the entire book of James read uh, in our hearing here in worship. Um, James is, 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 is a difficult book to study, um, and it's different than many of the other uh, books in the New Testament because James has a unique style of writing. It's a challenging book to study because there are uh, 60 commands in, in this book or imperatives that, that, that say like, do this, don't do that, don't do this do that. And there's, out of 108 verses, there are 60 commands. I mean, that's a lot of instruction. Over half the book is direct instruction. It's kind of hard to read a book like that. It's also um, challenging because his logic is really scattered. Um, in one chapter, he'll start to develop a theme, and then he'll, like, leave that theme and start talking about something else, and then he'll come back to that theme that he left and he'll deal with that and then he'll throw out another theme and then he'll come back to the second theme and so on. Someone once gave me an image for understanding how to understand the book of James and how to read the book of James that I have found really helpful. Um, James, reading the book of James is like standing at the edge of a lake and you're, you're watching him. He takes the, like a rock and he throws it out into the lake and it makes a big splash and at his point of impact, it forms these rings that go out. Um, and so this is very much like how James writes and thinks. He throws out a thought like a big rock. And then there are these ripples. And there's sometimes there are illustrations or parables or little stories that illustrate the big thought. And then he'll throw out another big rock. And, uh, and, and he throws it out and the ripples start to form and then the ripples from the other thought or idea start to overlap with those ripples and that's kind of how he writes. It's, it's, um, it's not linear. It's much more like a literary work of art. It's kind of like a New Testament book of Proverbs. And so what makes James so different than Paul is that Paul is writing from a Greek perspective. He's writing in the tradition of classical rhetoric of ancient Greece with linear thought progression. And James is writing in the Jewish poetic tradition of the ancient Hebrews, of the prophets and the Psalms and the Proverbs. And so there are three big ideas that James throws out into, into his letter and then he returns to these and he, and he extrapolates on these big themes throughout the book. But everything in the book can be found within these three themes. The nature of faith, like what is faith? How does it work? What's it all about? The character of God, like who is God, what is God like, and the meaning of Christian behavior. The meaning of Christian, what, in light of this, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And we'll see all three of these reflected in our chapter for today in chapter two. Before we get there, I just want to remind you that James was the first bishop of the Christian church. Um, and you can read about this in the book of Acts. 
It was during a time of rampant persecution and that's why James is writing so much instruction because there's so much temptation and so much pressure to abandon the faith. They're scattered, dispersed throughout the Roman Empire um, and, uh, and there's a whole lot of persecution. James was martyred, brutally martyred right before uh, the Jewish war of 66 AD when the temple was destroyed. So probably right before that is when he died and right before that is when he wrote this letter, most likely from Jerusalem. And the purpose is to give encouragement to these young Christians who are struggling with their faith in, in the face of persecution. James is saying, here's what it means to be a follower of Jesus um, in the midst of this. And you might remember that, um, that Pastor Bree reminded us that, uh, that James was the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. And so a lot of what James says, you can hear echoes in the teaching of Jesus. In fact, I think that the book of James is an entire commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe we can get to that a little bit more next week. But chapter 2 is broken up into two parts. Two sections. The first part of chapter 2 deals with the second two themes um, in the book of James, namely the character of God and the meaning of Christian behavior. James begins, my brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism, so he's talking about Christian behavior, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ? In other words, he's saying, I'm seeing you function in a way that looks very much like the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire has a caste system and classes and all kinds of favoritism. Ro getting six, being successful in Rome is all about who you know and where you find yourself on the ladder in that empire. And we live in a world that still wants to categorize people. It's very much what it means to be, part of what it means to be human is that we put people in boxes and we categorize them according to their outward experience. And the world wants to say that there may be real benefits in catering to the rich. And you should focus on honoring people who have the power and the means to help you get ahead in life. Don't waste your time with the poor because the poor can't do anything for you. This is what James is cor correcting. And so when we categorize people, we effectively judge them. We're saying this person's more valuable and worth more than, than this person. I mean, we even have a term for that called a, your net worth. I mean, what a terrible idea. Whoever came up with that concept of your net worth as if you're only worth you're worthy only according to your income. So James is giving advice on treating people equally regardless of the world's inequalities. Then he gives this little parable of what that looks like, you know, when you're catered to the rich and the poor. And then he goes on to say this, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? See, Christians are meant to create, work towards creating a new society that doesn't have those kinds of delineations and categories. Um, and it begins by learning to see people the way that God sees them. 
Um, as Paul says, in Christ there is no rich or poor, male, female, Jew, or Gentile. There are just people in need of the transforming love and power of God coming to us in Jesus Christ. All are invited to the table. There is no partiality in the kingdom of heaven. When I think about this teaching and what this looks like when it's lived out in a beautiful way by a person, I couldn't help but think this past week, at least, of uh, good old Mr. Rogers, the Reverend Fred Rogers. You know, his entire um, television program for children was born out of this vision of wanting to see children in a way that the world doesn't even see them. That even though a child is dependent on the adult world, nevertheless, that child is valuable and worthy and is, has a voice and is even worth airtime on television. There was a, um, in 2016, there was an episode on NPR's StoryCorps um, where they interviewed Francis Clemens. You remember Francis Clemens? He played the role of friendly Officer Clemens on uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood for over 25 years. And he was interviewed in 2016 by, on StoryCorps. Uh, Clemens was the first black actor to have a recurring role on a children's television series. And Fred was going out on a limb by casting him as a police officer. Clemens knew this, and he wasn't interested in this. He expressed reservations to Fred about this. Um, as he was reflecting on this in the interview, he said, I grew up in the ghetto. I didn't have a positive opinion of police officers. Policemen were sicking police dogs and water hoses on people in the 60s where I grew up. And I really had a hard time putting myself in that role. And so I was not excited about being Officer Clemens at all. Nevertheless, Clemens actually agreed to take on the role. And over the decades, he spent on the show, there was one scene in particular that had a huge impact on his life. He remembers with great emotion. It was from an episode in 1969 in which Rogers had been resting his feet in this plastic pool on a hot day. Clemens recalls, he says, Fred invited me to come over and to rest my feet in the water with him. The icon Fred Rogers not only was showing my brown skin in the tub with his white skin as two friends, but as I was getting out of that tub, he was helping me dry my feet. That's, a, that's an image of Maundy Thursday in a children's television show. Clemens went on uh, to say he... Um, he says he'll never forget the day that Rogers wrapped up the program, as he always did, by hanging up his sweater and saying, you make every day special just by being you. And I like you just the way you are. This time in particular, Rogers was looking at Clemens. And after they wrapped up, Officer Clemens walked up to Mr. Rogers and said, Fred, were you, were you talking to me today? And Fred said, I've been talking to you for years, but you heard me today. Clemens said, it was like telling me I'm okay as a human being. That was one of the most meaningful experiences I've ever had. We need to learn how to see people with the eyes of God, not through the eyes of the world. 
And remember I said there were three rocks or three main themes in the book of James. We see two of them in that first section, the meaning of Christian behavior. Why are we to show no partiality? Because God doesn't show partiality. God doesn't show favoritism. That's the second theme, the nature and character of God. And so these two themes get woven together and they overlap like ripples in a pond. Now we look at the second part of this chapter and we're going to see the first theme, which is the nature of faith, the nature of faith. Now James started threading this theme about the nature of faith in chapter 1, which Pastor Bree mentioned and talked about last week and reminded us that, that faith is something that grows through the testing and trials and through perseverance in the face of hardship. And now he, then he left that theme and he started to pick up another, the other two themes and now he's coming back to that theme in one of the most famous passages, probably the most famous passage in the book of James. In these 12 verses, he uses the word faith and the word works 11 times each. It's one of the most famous passages in James and it's very easily misunderstood. Even the great reformer Martin Luther didn't understand this passage rightly. James writes, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but have no works? I want to pause for a moment and look at the word works. Physi physicists love this word, and so actually perhaps do athletes. The word translated work here is from the Greek word erg, E-R-G, erg, work. And if you're a physicist, you know that's a very important word because an erg is a unit of energy in physics. And if you're an athlete, it's an important word because if you go to the gym, you've probably used an erg machine. A rowing machine is technically called an ergometer. In Greek, the word erg means work as a unit or work as an event. And it's where we get our English word for energy. That's why in physics it's used as a unit of energy, an erg. And it's that Paul uses this word in his first letter to Thessalonians when he says faith that works. And that's the same word that James uses here in the book of James. Now there's another word for work, it's kopos, and that is the word for sweat labor or like manual labor. And that's not the word that James uses. James uses this generic word, this unit of energy or work. So what in the world is he saying with this amazing passage that some people have misunderstood? He's not giving us a theology of works, interestingly. He's giving us a theology of faith, but he's giving us a tremendous, expansive understanding of what the nature of faith is. What if you say you have faith? I believe in God. I believe that God exists. What if you say you have faith, but it has no energy? It has no life. It doesn't show up. Can this, can it save you? Now watch this closely because the word faith James uses is an omnibus word. That means that it includes other concepts and James includes hope and love in his understanding of the nature of faith, in his definition of faith. And here we will see how he includes love. What good is it if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can such a faith save you? Can your faith all by itself, if it were an idea or an ideology, can that save you? Then he goes on, if a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to him, 
go in peace, keep warm and well fed. I'm kind of pouring it on a little bit because James is, is using humor. James is really cynical. There's a lot of cynicism in the book of James, especially even in this chapter. What good is it? If you see someone lying on the side of the road, think good Samaritan. He's naked and half dead and hungry and you simply go, God bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Keep warm and well fed. And you go on your way. What good is that? So what is James doing here? He's talking about love of neighbor, but he's talking about faith. You see, he's including love of neighbor in his definition of faith. He's combining these two. And later he'll do the same thing with hope. He goes on, So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works. Go ahead, try that. Show me your faith without your works. And I will show you my faith by what I do, as the NIV puts it. So James is uniting faith and works, erg. And this is what really upset Martin Luther because Martin Luther was so um, firmly grounded in Paul's understanding that we are saved not by works but by faith alone. But James isn't saying the opposite of that. So stay with me for a second. He goes on, faith by itself has no works. I by my works will show you my faith. He's uniting the two. Um, and, uh, and then he continues. You believe that God is one. Would you like a trophy? Like, uh, good job. Congratulations. You've ascribed your intellect to the existence of God. Wow. But it's made no claim on your life. Even the demons believe that God exists, and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? It's barren. It has no life. And then he gives us two examples of people from the story of the Scriptures, from, the, from Israel, who were listed in the Hebrews 11 and the Heroes of the Faith chapter, Abraham and Rahab, who did great deeds but they weren't rewarded for their great deeds. They were rewarded for the faith that drove them to do those great deeds. So Rahab in Joshua 2, she was a prostitute. And she wasn't part of the people of Israel. But Israel had sent in some spies to look around the, the Jericho. And she hid those spies at great danger to herself. And the Lord counted that as faith and righteousness. And then, of course, you remember Abraham, and James is now take, grabbing us by the hand and taking us to the time of Mount Moriah when Abraham is commanded by God to bring his son Isaac to the top of Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son. And Abraham, out of obedience, seeing beyond what he can see, believing beyond what he can see, that God is, in fact, faithful and kind and just and, and will fulfill his promise brings him up, and God, right before uh, Abraham sacrifices his son, God spares Isaac, and Abraham is not rewarded for doing a good deed. Abraham is rewarded for his faith, for his faith, somehow believing against all odds that God is good. So what is James saying here? I think what James is saying is that faith, like love and like hope, is an event that happens 
in our day-to-day life. It's not theoretical. James is in full agreement with Paul and with Jesus about this. The love of Jesus is not theoretical in the New Testament. It's not sentiment. The love of Jesus Christ is what he did. You can't separate what he said from what he did. You want to know what love is? Take a look at Jesus Christ in the New Testament. That's love. Jesus calling Zacchaeus from the tree and saying, I want to stay at your house tonight. Jesus dying on the cross on your behalf and mine, taking that sacrifice upon himself. That's love. It's an event, and so is faith. So is faith. Faith is an event that happens. Let's have none of this nonsense of faith being something religious or idealistic or ideological. Even the devil believes in God and knows of God's power, but that's not faith because faith includes love, and the devil doesn't love God, right? He shudders at God. So for James, faith is a concrete event that happens in us, through us, and toward the world around us. It's a growing word for James. Faith has its ups and its downs. It has its strengths and it has its doubts. And with ups and downs, we grow in our faith. For James, we discover that our faith can survive even in the midst of the greatest hardships and trials that that these witnesses experienced in their lives because as we focus our gaze on the love of God in Jesus Christ, what is in Jesus is transferred to us, namely the faith of Jesus Christ. It's not our faith that we muster up out of nothing. It is the faith of Jesus Christ that comes to us and it becomes like an event in our lives. Um, And so from James 2, wrap it up here. Remember, to practice showing no favoritism. Go out of your way to lift up those that uh, the world wants to exclude, those who cannot benefit uh, you in your worldly endeavors. Try to become aware and even gently correct yourself if you think of a, if a thought uh, of partiality comes, uh, intrudes into your life. God sees us all as his children and we can learn to see with the eyes of God too. And second, remember that faith is an event that happens in your life day to day, in you, through you, and toward the world around you. Every time you say yes to Jesus in your life and you seek to show that through the love of neighbor, what costs God much cannot be cheap for us. And that's the good news for us today. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.